So Genesis 43 today. And let me catch us up. Last time uh, we saw that Joseph and his or Judah and his brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain because there was a famine. And when they went to Egypt, lo and behold, they approached none other than their younger brother Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery 20 years ago. And Joseph, at this point, has arisen to second in command in Egypt. He is now the vice regent to Pharaoh. And yet, Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them as they stand and bow before Joseph, thus fulfilling Joseph's dreams, the prophecies in Joseph's dreams that his brothers would bow before him. And Joseph certainly is going through emotions, confusion, anger, and so he accuses them to be spies. He eventually he gives them the grain they need. He accuses them to be spies and said, do not come back. What I'm going to do is I'm going to keep your brother Simeon here with me. I'm going to lock him in prison. Do not come back with your youngest brother, Benjamin. And that will prove to me that the stories you tell me about this father you have and this younger brother you have are true. So do not come back to Egypt without your brother, Benjamin. And then I will give him and Simeon back to you. And so certainly the brothers go back dejected, having to tell their father that another son has been lost. And on their way home, or when they get home, they all open their sacks and find the silver that they were using to purchase grain in the land with is actually in their sacks. So now they're in a very precarious situation where not only is Simeon locked in prison in Egypt and they have to go get him, but also somehow the money that they used to purchase the grain in Egypt is still in their sacks. So now they're not only suspected to be spies, but now they have to explain that they're not thieves at the same time, that they didn't take back their money somehow. And so they delay. And they delay out of fear and out of worry. And so that's what gets us to chapter 43 today. So I invite you to read with me chapter 43. We'll look at verses 1 through 10 to begin with. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly so as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? And what we told him was, was just an answer to these questions. 
Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require it of him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would, we would have returned twice by now. <clears throat> so here's a very difficult situation. They're going to go back to Egypt, trying to prove that they're not spies and now not thieves. And Jacob has to give his beloved son, and Jacob's always playing favorites, and now his favorite is Benjamin. He has to give his new beloved son and send him to Egypt. Now, I want you to see something. This account so far has been primarily about Joseph. The Joseph narrative has been about Joseph for the most part. And it's focused on how he has been sold into slavery, he resisted temptation, sold, thrown into prison, and eventually elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh. So all of this has been mainly focused around Joseph. But interspersed throughout the Joseph narrative is Judah. And Judah is supposed to, you're supposed to compare and contrast the two. Now Judah is like the opposite of who Joseph is. He is not a stand-up godly man like Joseph is. It was Judah who said, let's sell Joseph into slavery and frame his death at the hands of a wild animal and then lie to our father about it. It was this was his idea. So this is this is a man who is callous. And also we saw in chapter 38, that whole chapter was devoted to Judah, who not only slept with prostitutes in that chapter, but then he lied about it. Or he didn't lie about it. Rather, he, um, he was going to put Tamar to death for sexual deviancy until it was found out that she's actually pregnant through him. And so he was found out, and he was brought to a point of repentance. But all in all, it seems like Joseph is a good egg, and Judah is a bad egg. It's like this man is a hopeless case. He sleeps with prostitutes. He is, he is a liar. He'll send his brother off to Egypt for some money. He'll lie to his father. There's a callousness to Judah. And I think, as I've been studying this passage, I think we have Judas in our life. And I, I have thought about this, and I know I have had Judas in my life. People that I have written off, I think, in the, in the past, saying there's no hope for this guy. He is completely lost. The question for us, I think, today is what do we do with these kind of people? I mean, Judah is like the kind of person we would write off as completely debauched. 
What do you do with these kind of people as Christians? Do we just write them off and say they, have, they are a hopeless case? Well, I'd like to explore that question. What should we do with people whom we deem hopeless because of their just completely debauched and callous sinfulness in their life? I'm going to trace this passage which is a big passage in three movements. First, the fact that Jacob's family has come to an end of themselves. Second, they are brought to a point of fear and trembling. Third, they are brought to a point of testing. And I would like you to keep in mind Judah. And think about that person in your life whom you deem a hopeless case. And let's see what God does with him. So first, they are brought to an end of themselves. As I said, they are in a very precarious situation. There is a famine in the land, and they are, they are about to starve to death, it seems. They need more food, but they can't go without Benjamin. So Judah implores Jacob, his father, and he says, Send Benjamin with me that we may live and not die, in verse 8. Both you, we, and also our little ones. What's significant about that is that the famine in the land is a threat to the existence of the promised seed. God promised Abraham, through your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And so, the, it is the famine that's a threat to the offspring of Abraham, the, line, the life of God's chosen family. And I think when we study this Joseph narrative, you need to begin with the end in mind, because the whole story is about how God's mysterious providence is working through what seem to be hopeless circumstances to keep the promised family alive. That is the entire big picture and in Genesis 50:20, that famous passage where Joseph reflects on everything that's happened to him in the past 20 years, he'll say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good that many should be kept alive as they are to this day. So God's providence working in Joseph's life had a long-range redemptive plan of keeping the promised seed alive. And so... Here, in chapter 43, we see that the famine is a threat to the offspring of Abraham. So Judah not only implores him to send Benjamin, but in the strongest words possible, Judah makes himself a pledge and a guarantee of Benjamin's safety to his father. He says in verse 9, I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require of him. If I do not bring him back to you and set you before him, then let me bear the blame forever. So Judah is putting himself up as a guarantee of Benjamin's safety, which is very interesting. Because this is not like the Judah who callously sold Joseph into slavery. It's not like the Judah who would lie to his father. So the question is here, has Judah matured to the point 
where he is actually truly putting himself on the line, or is he just saying that to try to get to wrench Benjamin from Jacob's hands? Has he matured? Has there been spiritual progress in his life? Well, we'll have to see as the passage goes on. Jacob, we see, realizes that they're going to actually starve to death if they don't get food. And so he is actually forced to give Benjamin over. So read with me verses 11 through 14. After Judah implores him to send Benjamin, and after he puts himself on the line, we read, Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And take also your brother, and arise, and go to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your brother, Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. What we have here is Jacob coming to an end of himself. He's no longer clutching on to Benjamin. In fact, he's entrusting the situation to God. He has to trust the situation to God. He has to give it over. He is brought to an utter end of himself. He says, may God Almighty grant you that your brother would come back. And he says, if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. And I think what we see here is exactly what we mean by the word entrusting something to God. When you entrust a situation to God, it means that you are preparing you're giving it over to God's will and you're preparing yourself for the possibility that it may the situation may not turn out the way you desire it. So you're making peace with any outcome when you entrust that's trusting God. And that's entrusting yourself to God. It is giving this situation over to God. All my anxiety, which is really my attempt to secure the future, the way I want it. I'm giving that over to God now. I'm entrusting the situation and I'm making peace with any outcome that will come down in the future. I think we need to hear that. I know I need to hear that. We cannot secure results in life, nor are we called to. We're called to abandon results to God and trust situations and circumstances to him and make peace with the fact that it may not turn out the way you desire and that is okay because you are still dearly loved by the Father and you have not been forsaken and sometimes God's providence is extremely mysterious and he is working in you and through you in ways which you cannot perceive Humble yourself at the, under the mighty hand of God, and at due time, he will exalt you.
So, the whole family is brought to an end of themselves and they have to give the situation over to God. If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So Judah and Jacob are brought to an end of themselves. They're forced to trust God for the results and entrust God with results. And now we see that they are going to be brought to a point of fear and trembling. Read with me in verse 16. When Joseph, or verse 15, so the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin, and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men of the house and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And when the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, they said, It is because of the money which was placed in our sacks for the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall on us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there, there was in each man's sack the money. Our money was there in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down to buy food with. And we do not know who put it in our sacks. And the steward replied, Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought out Simeon to them. And when they had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, then they had washed their feet. And when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. And they heard that they should eat bread there. This is where this situation gets very bizarre for the brothers. They are facing the real possibility of being punished, or worse, because they're seen as spies and maybe even thieves. And so they go down to Egypt and they just desperately confess to the steward of the house, saying, we, we didn't steal the money, it was in our sacks, we promised we didn't... We didn't do anything. We just found it there. Here it is. We'll give it back. We'll give more back to you. And so there's anxiety and paranoia. And, and they even say, I know why they brought us into Joseph's house. It's so that they might assault us, in verse 18, and fall on us and make our servants and take our donkeys from us. And so there's this fear and paranoia that sets in to their heart. And then they're treated exactly the opposite of what they expected. Exactly the opposite of what they expected. In fact, they're brought in. Someone washes their feet. Someone feeds them. And in fact, they feed their donkeys. So this, this is exactly the opposite of what they expected. And so I think at this point there must be apprehension 
There must be confusion. What precisely is going on here that we are brought into the house of the vice regent of Egypt? The steward says, I received your money, yet here it is in my bag. This is a very strange and tense situation. And then their bewilderment certainly grows at this point as they participate in a bizarre banquet now with Joseph. So read with me in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. They bowed down. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there, and then he washed his feet and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. So at this point, the brothers must be wondering what in the world is going on. Why is this man so obsessed with my old man? Why, is, why are his eyes welling up with tears when he sees our younger brother? Why is he running out of the house? What, what is happening here? This is truly a bizarre encounter with the vice regent of the most powerful man on earth. And they're treated almost like kings. So we read... Then he washed his face and came out, that is Joseph, and controlling himself, he says, serve the food. They served him by himself and by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that, and is an that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So that means it's almost like akin to the Jew-Gentile relationship in the first century. It, was, it would be an abomination for Egyptians the most powerful force on earth to dine with Hebrews. And so they dine at separate tables. And they sat before him, the firstborn, and they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at each other in amazement. And they noticed that they're all seated are told to be seated in order of their age. How the Egyptian vice-regent knew this only confuses them. Oh, I'm sorry, Ray. I broke your, broke your thing. Um, so this is a confusing situation for them. And then, in verse 34, we read that portions were given to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as, any of, as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with them. So here we have 
They're seated according to their ages, and then the food is brought out, and they all get food, but then Benjamin, the youngest son, gets like 25 chicken wings, and they don't know what this means. This is a very strange situation. And then they bring out the wine. And eventually, as the night goes on, they become intoxicated and they actually become merry. So here, they have, they have truly gone through the ringer today. They go to Egypt thinking they might, be, they might be thrown into prison or killed as spies and thieves. But then, they're actually treated well. Their donkeys are fed, their feet are washed. Then they come in, they have this bizarre banquet with Joseph, who's acting very strange, the vice-regent of Israel. And then Benjamin gets all this food right next to them. They don't know what that means. So at this point, though, they drink. They realize, hey, this guy's not too bad. He's treating us pretty good. So their paranoia turns into merriment at this point. Their fear has been turned into laughter. They're drunk. They're having a good time. And now, having been brought from fear and trembling to merriment, now they will be put to the test. Chapter 44 is really where we see this heighten in intensity. They brought their younger brother and he was treated well. So they're good with that. So they don't think Benjamin's about to be thrown into prison. And thank goodness, because Jacob, our father, if, he was, if Benjamin was lost too, we don't know what would happen to our father. He is so attached to Benjamin. But we see clearly that they're lulled into a false sense of security. And so we read in verse 1 of chapter 44. Then he commanded, then Joseph commanded the steward of the house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his servant, steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. You know, there are some animals that play with their food before they eat it. I saw a video of an um, orca whale throw a seal like eight stories up in the air. They just toy around with their food before they eat it. I saw also a leopard in a tree kind of just playing around before he, uh, he ripped the head off of this small deer. <laughs> so... It's, it's almost like th this is kind of what I'm getting from this situation, that Joseph, who clearly seems, at least from the perspective of the brothers, to be an unstable person, crying, 
giving weird amounts of food to people, obsessed with their family. Um, it almost seems like the reader would, would think that Joseph is just a strange man going to kill these people and he's just toying around with them at this point. Um, so Joseph is going to frame them, frame Benjamin of all people for, for stealing the goblet. Now he says, tell this, he says to the servant, say to them, isn't this the cup that this vice regent practices divination with? Um, that is referring to the ancient practice of discerning the will of the gods through the liquid in the cup. Now whether Joseph does this or not is not actually said. But I don't think he has been paganized because throughout the narrative, before and we'll see after, he praises, he gives thanks to, and he acknowledges the God of Israel. So I think what Joseph is doing is he's trying to maintain this picture of him as a vice-regent of Egypt in their eyes. He's not trying to show his cards yet. He's just trying to strike fear in them. And so as the narrative goes on, the steward goes down with the police of Egypt and they pull over their camels and they check their sacks and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And we read in verse 13, and they all tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. So the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They all go down to Egypt to face what they believe will be imprisonment now or worse. And so we read in verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can practice divination? And Judah said, Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now that is a very interesting thing to say. Remember in chapter 42, Judah and his brothers are brought to an awareness of their guilt. And they believe their brother's blood, Joseph's blood, has been crying out to God. And now God's providence has finally caught up with them. And they're feeling the weight of that in this situation. It's almost like God's providence keeps finding them. Behold, we are your servants, both we and also the one in whose, cup you, in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall my servant shall be my servant. But as for you, you all go, go up in peace back to your father. Again, just like we saw in chapter 42, Joseph is giving the brothers a chance to abandon their brother in Egypt again. 
they've been given the money, they've been given the grain, and Joseph says, only Benjamin will stay with me. The rest of you can go. So this replicates, again, the same exact situation as the brothers were in 20 years ago. Think back. They callously sell their brother to Egypt for money. They're in the same position now. They could escape with their lives. They could escape this situation. They could lie to their father again. They would be safe. They would have grain and they would have money. So the test is given. The question is, has Judah and have the brothers matured because of God's providence carrying them to and fro allowing them to feel the weight of their sins have they come to a point where there has been a change of heart well Judah yes the man who proposed to sell Joseph to Egypt the man who was sleeping with prostitutes, the man who was, had a callous disregard for his father, takes up the mantle and he approaches the vice-regent of the most powerful man on earth at this point. And we read in verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down with to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, the father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So Joseph, what Judah is doing, <clears throat> is he's just laying all his cards on the table. He's just telling him exactly what the situation is, interceding, interceding for his brother, Benjamin, and his father. So we read in verse 30. Now therefore, Judah is still speaking, as soon as I come to, my, come to your father, my servant, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up, in the boy's life, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his father for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me 
I fear to see the evil that would befall my father. Judah has turned from a man, it seems, who is willing to sell a brother into slavery, callously lie to his father, to now a man who is brought to an utter end of himself, and now emerges as an intercessor and a substitute for his brother because of love for his father. I think we see a complete transformation in Judah's life. Twenty years earlier, he was not this kind of man. But it was through being found out as the one who pregnated Tamar and had to be brought to a point of repentance. It was through God's providence allowing Judah to feel the weight of guilt for the past sins and now it is through this desperate situation that Judah it is squeezed out of Judah a holiness that God has been working in him now this man is offering a substitute himself as a substitute for his brother he is not a, he is not about to abandon his brother in Egypt and he is not about to lie to his father. He says, take me instead. It's the compassion for his father. Wanting to stand in for his brother. Usually, th this is before the grand finale almost of this story. In, verse, in chapter 45. I want to leave that to next week because I want to linger on Judah just for a few minutes because too often we pass over him in this story there has been a true transformation in Judah's life he was an utterly hopeless man sold his brother he was a sexual deviant he was a liar and he had callous disregard for his father clearly he was a bad egg in the beginning but now he is a new person through God's providence through repentance, through the weight of sin, and through desperate situations. He has been made perfect through suffering. What this shows me is that God really changes people over time. He really does change people over time. I heard a pastor give great advice. He said, allow people to advance beyond your first impression of them. I thought that was one of the most profound social pieces of tips I've ever gotten. Allow people to advance beyond your first impression of them. Because over time, God changes people. God grows people. They become more mature. We begin as infants, but we grow up into maturity. And I see here in the life of Judah a foreshadowing of sanctification. A foreshadowing of how God brings people and changes their heart. So, a brothers and sisters, for a Christian, 
and as people who trust the power of God in other people's lives, <clears throat> we should allow people to advance beyond what we may initially think about them or the sins that they have committed against us in the past. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolater, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm sure every single person in this room can identify with at least one of those descriptions. But the Apostle Paul goes on and says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. God truly does change people. And that begins at the point of regeneration, and it does continue. It does continue. So, I believe love hopes all things and believes all things. If anyone was a hopeless case, it was Judah. Anyone was a hopeless case, it was Judah. So I want you to think about that hopeless case in your life right now. He is not or she is not beyond the point of God's power. He or she is not beyond the point of being washed, of being sanctified and being justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's power is a power not only to save, but to change the very heart of the cold and most callous person. Another thing I see from Judah is this redemptive pattern in Judah's actions of self-sacrifice. He's brought to a point of sacrificing himself. If there is a river through which redemptive history flows, that river is the river of selfless sacrifice for God's people. That is the path, the course of godliness. Judah has been brought to a man who is selfish and evil, to a man now who is interceding and putting himself up for his brother for the sake of his father, the Lord has changed Judah and little wonder now why this evil man, having been changed, is actually the great, great forefather of Christ himself. Because the promised line would continue through Judah. Through Judah. So at the beginning of the story, you would ask yourself, why would the line continue through this man? Well, now you see the Lord has wrought a change in him. So now he has made, been made perfect through suffering. And now the Messiah's line will be continued through this man. He's been brought to that point of selfless sacrifice. Just like the Messiah himself. Jesus Christ. 
I think it was the night before he was going to the cross, he said to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friend. There is selfless sacrifice in Christ. And that continues in Christ's people. Because a man like the Apostle Paul will say something almost hard to understand, like, I would consider myself accursed for the sake of my brothers, the Jewish people. There is this spirit of selfless, sacrificial love that flows through God's people. And the ones through whom it flows the most, it seems, are the ones that God uses is pleased to use mightily. By this we know, we read in 1 John, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, selfless sacrifice. Now, we're not in a persecuted land, our church. And so, maybe we will come to a point of having to literally lay down our lives for Christ and for one another. But I just want to read you, that this made me think about our church covenant. I want to read you one of the paragraphs that this made me think about. We will devote ourselves to this fellowship, to remember one another in prayer to comfort one another in sickness and distress, to be slow to take offense and ready for reconciliation. We endeavor to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures to meet the needs of one another, to serve alongside one another, Cooperating, is cooperating to see each one of us conformed into the image of Christ. Mm. So that is how we can exercise selfless sacrifice in this congregation. We could be slow to take offense and ready for reconciliation always. We could endeavor to love one another as brothers and sisters. We can give what we have in times of need and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we can serve alongside one another, making sure that it's not just the physical parts of life that we're taking care of, but actually we're wanting to see each other grow spiritually in the Lord. So, this is, the, this is simply the path of godliness. Self-sacrificial love for the brothers that Christ paved and that we see foreshadowed in the life of Judah. Also, too, don't forget people do change. God does change the hardest heart. And so allow in this congregation or any other brother to outgrow your first impression of them, knowing that God changes even the harder heart. Next week, we're going to see how Joseph finally 
tells them who he is and he will reflect on all his suffering theologically in view of God's mercy and grace and providence in his life. Let's close in a word of prayer and could I ask Stefan to come up and lead us in one last song.